everyone, welcome to the History Hotline. I'm your host, Tiana Lynn Cook, and today is episode 17, I believe. We're really getting through these episodes. Now, today we're going to be talking about the Brockwell Three, um, which was a case in 1973 where three young black boys were wrongfully um, accused. It's not an uncommon theme. It's not something that doesn't come up time and time again in, in history in the Western world, not just Britain. But America, if you cast your mind back to our first episode, we had the Mangrove Nine. Within the British context, we've had so many other, like, little catchy place, amount of people wrongly accused. Um, just kind of following the, the line of the, like, Central Park Five, you've had the Mangrove Nine, the Brockwell Three we'll be talking about today, the Oval, Oval Four, the Stockwell Six, um, and they're just kind of cases in London in the 1970s. There are just so many... I think it's important to talk about this today while this is a podcast that has found its niche in black British history. It didn't really, you know, I didn't intend for it just to speak about black British history, but I've realised that it doesn't really exist, um, you know, a podcast solely dedicated to it. Um, and so I, t- I tend to, you know, want to keep my focus to black British history, but it would be, I think, quite the oversight to not reference or mention at least um, the execution of Brandon Bernard um, earlier this week which essentially broke a 17-year run of no executions done by the federal government you're probably thinking oh but wait I think I swear I heard about people getting executed earlier this year and last year yes you would be right but they were executed um, in line with like state laws so the state would have decided to execute them when the federal government um, you know decides to do that that is directly an order coming from the president again Donald Trump has Hmm, made history um he breaks a 130 year old precedent of pausing executions during a presidential transition um as he's on his way out and joe biden is on his way in on the 20th of january 130 years the tradition has been that there is a pause during that time of executions done by the federal government just because um, a new president might want to review the cases and kind of redecide. it gives time for like appeals and things like that um, but Donald Trump has essentially steamrolled this whole process and said, absolutely not, we're going to push through with all of these. Um, there are another three executions planned in America um, in the next few weeks leading up to January 20th. One of them is of a woman called Lisa Montgomery, who would be the first woman to be executed since 1953. Um, another man, Corey Johnson, and another man, Dustin John Higgs. Two of these people have um, been analysed, um, I don't think that's the right word, but diagnosed with uh, mental health issues um, due to trauma they suffered in childhood. And, you know, I mean, these people have obviously committed crimes and I guess in essentially it boils down to whether you think um, execution is the right way to punish people. Personally, I don't. I think it highlights the failings of a country to properly rehabilitate people. And whilst I understand that you know, having people in prison costs the taxpayer money. Um, The fact that for the most part, you know, people will be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, if they're executed, then they're not going to be taking up taxpayers' money. But people stay on death row for such a long time. Um, Brandon Bernard, who was executed a few days ago, of me recording this podcast, that is, um, he was on death row for, I believe, 17 years. Um, And when you're in death on death row um, and held in those facilities, you are kept in solitary confinement. And so for the most part of his sentence, he would have been in um, solitary conditions for up to 23 hours a day. Um, he was have said to have been kind of an example of someone that would have 
been have, would have rehabilitated. He, you know, crocheted. He knitted. Um, his cell was apparently filled with yarn and crochet um, tools because that is what he was doing. He didn't have any kind of records of violence or criminal behaviour or bad behaviour whilst in prison and serving his sentence. And so you could argue that he had been successfully rehabilitated and as he committed a crime at such a young age, um, it's very unlikely that he would have been a danger to society, which, in my opinion, is the purpose of prison. Um, it's obviously a punishment, but also it's to take people that could be a danger to society off the streets, and if they're no longer da a danger to society and they have rehabilitated um, and are also um, remorseful, which he was... Um, you know, is there really a need for execution, especially, and now this is where we get to the crux of it, especially in a country um, where the system is and has been declared to be institutionally racist and there are so many um, racial kind of inequalities towards black people within the justice system in America. And so how can you justify punishment as final as execution when um you know their legal system isn't really watertight and there are so many people that have been wrongfully executed um, and found to be innocent after their death so i'm not going to talk too much about that whole case because i feel like it's not my area of expertise and i don't want to speak on things that i don't really know about um whilst you know i read the news and understand the bare facts but i did do some research and have got some podcasts that you might want to listen to um or just i guess generally reading the news um if you'd like to know more and be informed about this and also potentially get involved in i don't know if they're signing petitions and just kind of speaking out and raising awareness for the, the three people that are due to be executed in the next few weeks um you know it's literally coming up to christmas and there are people that are literally living on death row which obviously um is not is not great especially in a system that is is built to to unfairly treat black people in these situations anyway podcast you can listen to so don't know if anyone listens to ebro in the morning's podcast he's a dj i think he's a new york dj um his latest podcast episode speaks about this towards the end um skip through because he talks about a lot of things his podcasts are really long um, there's another podcast done by a man called Malik Anthony. It's called Murder and a Bunch of the Weird Shit. Um, and his that title is The Case of Brandon Bernard. Um, and then also another one I liked. It was quite a short one, um, but quite informative. A podcast called Virgin Territories. And their podcast episode is called Federal Death Row, Brandon Bernard. Um, and they all speak about quite different elements of, of the case and what's happened. And some of them are before the execution so they're explaining things and kind of telling you what you can do which obviously unfortunately you can't do anymore but nevertheless feel free to have a listen and educate yourself on those topics um, because they whilst don't necessarily impact us here in the UK where we do not have the death penalty thank the lord they do have an impact on criminal justice systems um, failing the people that they are meant to serve and protect and institutional racism in its kind of easiest to understand form, I would say. Um, and the fact that, you know, these this has been the case for an extremely long time, as we will look at um, when we look at the case that we will be studying for this podcast episode. Um, and I think the key point is that little has been done to remedy the situation of institutional racism in the criminal justice system. 
and yes that is is where i will finish the longest introduction i've probably ever done on this podcast ever So you might be thinking, Brockwell 3, why are we talking about this today? Well, essentially, the Small Axe series by Steve McQueen, this is going to be a a very short tangent, I promise. The Small Axe series by Steve McQueen, um, the short films that have been on TV for the last five Sundays, the final one um, was talking about the education system. And it was quite interesting to me because it's something that I research quite a lot at the moment. The you know the kind of dramatization of um, a young boy who was going through that system of being placed in a quote unquote special school that was actually just a dumping ground um, for children who weren't supposed to be able to cope in mainstream education or who the government decided they didn't want to cope because um, they weren't really given much of a chance. So I'm reading a text called Black, Expo- Black Explosion at British Schools um, by Fruit Dundee, Barbara Beast and Leila Hassan. And they were all um, members of the Black Panther movement in Britain. We speak about them a lot more in the Black Panther episode and in the Mangrove Nine episodes. Um, if you are new here and you want to go back, please feel free. But within this text, um, there's an article. So it's a collection of articles. Um, and one of the articles is written by a school teacher. And he's speaking about the kind of issues with the education system in catering for West Indian and kind of the wider context of the word black, um, black students. And also he highlights this case of the Stockwell Three, although he doesn't call them that. Um, he just talks about them being um, student activists and protesting against the treatment of the police during their inquiry um, about a clash with police that had taken place in 1973 in Brockwell Park. So... Essentially, what had happened was June 1973, there was an annual firework display at Brockwell Park, which is in Brixton in London. Just for context as well. um, Actually, this isn't actually context. Just a point I wanted to raise because someone mentioned it to me, um, a wonderful listener of this beautiful podcast. They said that this history is very London centric and you are 100% right. I feel like I have neglected some of the greatest cities in the United Kingdom with this focus on London. But it says, I think, it says a lot about me maybe, but it also says a lot about the way that black history is taught in Britain and the focus on London constantly. And don't get me wrong, a lot of things happen in London, but this is absolutely not to say that things did not happen outside of London. We can talk about Birmingham, we can talk about Leeds, we can talk about Yorkshire. We've, I mean, we had a little bit of an episode about Wales when we looked at the riots in 1919. But that is another thing that I definitely, definitely, definitely want to speak more about, looking at the regional histories of black people around the country. Because everything did not happen in London. And there were so many points and places of resistance outside of the capital. And especially as a non-Londoner, I'm not from London, I don't live in London. I don't know why I'm talking about them all the time. But don't worry, um, there will be some more regional histories coming soon. Um, But I would say that, you know, the histories of London when it comes to black people are the most known because they were the biggest communities of black people in London. And so it does make make sense in that in that way. Um, But don't worry, change is coming. (laughs) So anyway, back to Brockwell Park on the 9th of June, 1973. Um, So a white man was fatally stabbed at the annual firework display. Um, during the festivities at a crowded fish and chip shop um, in, obviously, South London. By the time the police arrived, you know, a large crowd had gathered um, and it had become agitated. Um, 
I don't know who stabbed that man. I don't know if it was racially motivated. Um, at this point in the story, it's not really relevant. Essentially, a man has been stabbed. It's a serious incident. Um, so the police immediately identify um, two black men in the crowd, not sure how, um, and began to, to beat them up. That were, The two men were Horace Robinson, or Horace, um, who was a 19-year-old youth worker, and Lloyd James, who was an attendee at the Parkinson's Youth Club, and he was only 18. Um, so, you know, the crowd saw this and then started to throw bottles and stones at the police because they were beating up these young boys who, you know, I don't know what the feeling was, but essentially that they hadn't really done anything wrong. Um, they had just kind of been picked out of this crowd um, of a lot of people. So the police called reinforcements, as usual, um, and eventually arrested Robinson and James, along with um, another <laughs> literal child, a 14-year-old called Robin Sterling, who was a student at Tulse Hill Comprehensive um, in South London. And so officers, you know, beat them, charged them with assaulting police officers and carrying offensive weapons. However, nobody was charged in the stabbing of the individual that started the whole thing. So the issue then shifts from a man being stabbed and trying to find out who did that to the police asserting their dominance over a crowd of um, majority black people. So we get to March 1974, which is um, a few months after, um, nine months, I believe, if my maths serves me correctly. Um, and a judge ruled Robinson, James and Sterling guilty, um, sentencing each of them to three years in prison. And these young men, and I'm going to say, I don't even want to use the word young men or the term young men because, sorry, a 14 year old is a boy. And fair enough, you know, at the age of 18 and 19, you're legally an adult. Um, a 14 year old Robin Sterling is a little boy. Um, that's like a year nine. They're <laughs> tiny. And regardless if he wasn't tiny, he's a boy. But anyway, I think it, it definitely speaks on the way that black children are adultified. That's not the right word. Hello, hi, it's Deanna from the edits. Um, what I actually meant here is adultification um, and the adultification of um, black children. Um, it's also called adultification bias. Um, and it's a form of racial prejudice where children of black black children or children from minority groups um are treated as more mature than they actually are by societal standards anyway back to the episode thanks but essentially perceived to be a lot older than they are um there's been so many studies shown on it and it is one of the reasons um or argued to be one of the reasons why especially in america um young black children are are like kind of criminalized from a young age um there's so many cases of young kids playing with toy guns or toys that resemble, I don't know how toys can resemble a gun if it's not a gun, and being killed by the police um, because they are perceived to be older and a threat and dangerous. And it's clear that the same psychological thinking was at play here because to have a 14-year-old, you know, sentenced to two years, um, picked out of a crowd, essentially, um, and beaten up by police officers who would have been grown men is disgusting. So back to Tulse Hill School um, and the kind of aftermath of these arrests. So at Tulse Hill, um, there was a committee formed called the Black Students Action Collective, um, shortened to Black SAC. 
and it invited other students from neighbouring schools to join um, and they called for a one-day strike. Now, even some teachers who were described by some as like hardliners and even racists in some cases backed the movement um, because they saw that the boys were being victimised um, and as opposed to siding with police as they might have usually done, um, they wrote testimonials for the boys for the trial to present in court. Um, and then, you know, community activists also picked up the mantle and joined in with this activism against what had happened. So on March 20th, 1974, um, community leaders, as mentioned before, um, led by a Jamaican community organiser, Courtney Laws, um, she advocated like to bring the community together to um, protest the arrest and also get legal representation for the three. So practical steps um, to help these three young men and boys. And, you know, kind of perfect, I guess, in the situation. And then, you know, alongside of that, you've got the um, Black Zach who are talking about a strike and wanted to march from Brockwell Park to Relton Road, um, which was one of the key centres of kind of like black settlement in Brixton at the time. And so you've kind of got this really beautiful harmony and unity between, sorry, it sounds a bit poetic and it, I don't feel like it should be. I don't want to romanticise this at all because it shouldn't have to happen, but it did. Um, and so, yeah, you've got this harmony between student activists who are, when I say student, I'm not talking about university students, I'm talking about school children um, and community activists who can provide more um you know, actual support in regards to legal representation. And so we get to March 30th and over 500 protesters led by students from Black Sack marched to Relton Road and held a public meeting to spread information about the case. And then, you know, community came out as well to back it. And protesters um, that were also fighting for the Brockwell Three, because as we've mentioned before in podcast episodes, I think I say this a lot, but... When there are protests, um, I feel like they are never just about one thing. There might be an event or an issue or a problem that is a catalyst for protests. However, they tend to engulf issues. And I would say with a protest like this, it would have engulfed issues such as the treatment of black people by the police. Um, you know, disproportionate numbers of stop and searches under a thing called sus laws um, they weren't known as stop and searches back then um, but there was a thing called sus laws which allowed the police to stop anyone that looked like a suspect and they were named as sus laws um, and also racism from the national front which was kind of you know peaking in the 19 early 1970s and I think these protests were an amalgamation of many issues that were taking place in London at the time within the black community, but not just London, as I mentioned before, with other groups as well around the country. A further march took place on the 3rd of April um, and it was kind of more student led, I would say. There was around a thousand students, school children um, and young black residents of Brixton. They marched. Um, past the police station, past Talks Hill Comprehensive, and interestingly enough, at Talks Hill, so the school that um, one of the Brockwell Three went to, um, Robin Sterling, my apologies, um, yeah, so the school he actually went to, and who, I guess you could say, you know, the people at that school would have known him the best, 
Um, the school, the head teacher actually decided that he didn't want to be in support of this protest. He locked the school gates to stop any pupils or teachers joining the march as it went past. Whereas other schools in the area, um, the teachers actually supported the march and went out with them because they thought, um, kind of in a way, if the teachers are out there, then if there's any trouble, they can maybe prevent trouble from happening and kind of keep the peace, essentially. And they would rather prevent any kind of escalation of anything that could occur, especially, you know, knowing how the police like to keep an eagle eye on on protests especially when it's black people um so yeah um some schools in the area had the support of teachers and staff but Tolts Hill where um you know Robert Sterling actually attended um did not um but apparently I don't know how true this is because it was um said in an article that I read but um students were climbing over the fence um and the gates of the school to get out and join the march um which I guess shows the power of it all essentially um but anyway the protest went on um it concluded at Brockwell Park which was obviously the scene of the original incident and the leader of the 1963 Bristol boy bus boycotts um and community organizer Paul Stevenson he was there and they met with him and we will definitely have an um, episode on the Bristol bus boycotts um in 2021 uh, or in the next few weeks um it's like a clear piece of of black British history that didn't take place in London and was so instrumental to race relations in the UK um, and it's something we'll talk about so I won't talk about it right now um, but essentially members from Black Sack, um, Paul Stevenson who was leader of that boycott, um, they left a letter um, of protest to the House of Commons um, and went to deliver that, sorry, and also to speak to David Ennals who was the Labour Minister, Labour Party Minister of State um, and just to, I guess, speak to people in a position that could help them, um, you know, in, in Parliament and in, in politics. Um, an anonymous student who took part in the march on the 3rd of April, um, he, he released, or she released a statement, um, and it said, We marched along Camberwell New Road to the courts where the three had been convicted. From the courts at Camberwell, the march proceeded on to Brixton Police Station, where the three were taken after their arrests. There, as all along the route, we chanted... Free, free, the Brockwell Three. Ooh, a bit of a tongue twister. The march then went up to Tulse Hill School, uh, where we were encouraged by scores of boys to, as I said, scale the school's fences and walls to join us. Uh, our brethren and the youngest of the three was released on appeal. We heard that before quashing his sentence, the presiding judge asked the prosecution if they really expected him to believe that the slightly built boy stood before him was really responsible for single-handedly beating an invalid... <laughs> Sorry, this is exactly my thoughts in a statement. Um, let, me, let me go back. We heard that before quashing his sentence, the presiding judge asked the prosecution if they really expected him to believe that the slightly built boy stood before him was responsible for single-handedly beating and invalidating an experienced 17-stone police officer out of the force. Essentially, the point I've been saying all along, how this small little 14-year-old boy was capable of doing what was accused of him. Um, and, you know, they were released on appeal because the judge, thankfully, had sense um, to see that that was just a completely ridiculous accusation. Um, but, yeah, the protest gained a lot of publicity and support um, from the community on behalf of the Brockwell Three. And I think, yeah, Sterling and Parkinson were released um but they both had served a year in prison 
um, because obviously this all took a really long time. And James, who I believe was the 19-year-old in the case, he was not released and he was forced to serve another year in prison. Um, Student-led and initiated protests became more common following the success of Black Sack. Now, it's at this juncture that we'd wrap this podcast up, essentially, um, you know. I would say that there's not really much information out there. I had to do some really deep digging to find information about the Brockwell 3 in this case. Um, I'm sure with some archival access, more could be done, um, you know, to talk about and think about this. But I want to raise a point raised by the teacher um, in the article in Black Explosion, British Schools, um, that kind of sparked my interest in this case. And he argues, and he's, his point is really interesting, um, I have to speak about it. He says the incident kind of highlights how much more readily black students were likely to protest against police injustice than they were about the curriculum or the schooling system. That was clearly holding them back in so many ways. And, you know, that's me paraphrasing what he said and, and putting that into my own words. But I think it highlights the persistence of institutional racism that often goes uncovered, but is oftentimes more violent and more persistent than physical violence or attacks from the police. Um, it garners less attention because you could argue that it's it's harder to protest about, you know, things that are institutionally ingrained or within systems of um, different like echelons of society, shall we say. But essentially, these kind of clear cases of, of police brutality or excessive force used or injustice at the hands of the justice system, it's very easy to, to protest about them and to go and strike about them. And that's not to say that, you know, children didn't care about potentially the fact that they were being held back for the rest of their lives by a school system that was disproportionately impacting um, black students. Um, as we saw in the Small Axe episode um, where, you know, that child is taken to a quote-unquote special school, an ESN, and is essentially just left. It's a dumping ground. The kids are just left. There's a man who plays guitar, smokes cigarettes in front of the kids, swears, um, allegedly, supposedly a teacher. But these things weren't necessarily protested by young people. And that's not to say they didn't care about their education, but they were probably unaware of the long-term impact of you know, what this would have on their on their lives. And so I think it's very interesting how black community reacted to two forms of institutional racism compared to maybe more over overt forms of racism. And just a point to leave you with, I guess. Um and, you know, Brockwell Park, great place of resistance. I believe that um Extinct Rebellion had occupied the space um earlier this year and last year in the protest as well so it's clearly um a place of of great you know resistance and rebellion which we love to see maybe you know if you're if you're local to south london take a walk in brockwell park and see if you feel that spirit of resistance down there that is everything i have to say about that incident so thank you so much for listening um please follow us on twitter instagram we're on linkedin now as well follow us on spotify apple podcasts google podcasts leave a review rate us comment like share subscribe tell a friend to tell a friend thank you so much for listening goodbye